Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I loved being on stage with a mad punk audience pogoing away. You may think I'm wacky in the experiences I've had. Robert is exactly the same. Every barrier I come up against, I will push back. Two girls would take me into that Wendy house. They would remove their shoelaces and strangle me till I lost consciousness. I never knew I was disabled. The thing about disability is you don't know you have it until other people treat you as if you're disabled. She'd witnessed her father murder her mother. My diary is empty. I'm going back to the UK. I'm going to meet my wife. He knew. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. I want to start with your childhood. Um, And um, we are formed from our childhoods, you know, and, uh, you know, I'll tell you a little bit about mine in a minute as well. Um, Your father was a businessman. Your mother had been a dancer. And what's written in Wikipedia is that she gave up dancing to have um, a family. But can That's you tell correct. me about your early childhood? Because you were born with a bent spine yeah. and had a limp. Well, my early childhood was really idyllic. My, my parents were wealthy. My father was incredibly wealthy right up until I was 12 years old. Uh, he ran a construction business in Birmingham. He had three factories. He, were, he came from the Wilcox Lang dynasty he was a very hardworking man. We had a new Rolls Royce every six months. Um, I never knew I was disabled. And I think the thing about disability is you don't know you have it until other people treat you as if you're disabled. So I, I, when I was born, I was born at home. My, my mother literally prepared Sunday lunch for the family, my brother and sister and dad, Um, She went into labour at about 11.15. The midwife came and she gave birth to me in her bedroom at 11.45 and was back down with the family by one o'clock. So, you know, this this is what life was then. And just to reflect back even further, my father was born at a time of high 
child mortality. So he was one of 13 children and only three survived. So there was a toughness about life back then. We didn't have central heating. We very rarely had hot baths until I was about seven. And that was normal, wealthy British life back then. Um, with my disability, I, I knew something was up because every six months I was in hospital and every morning and night, my mother had to give me physio, which I really enjoyed. This physio included things like painting with my feet, uh, things that I became very expressive with. I could write with my feet. I could paint with my feet. I didn't know that to be called hop along by my family was politically incorrect. I thought I was being favoured. Um, so it was I, the seventies or sixties. I don't know. Yeah. It was, you know, it well, was, this I was mean, mainly, I, mainly the sixties. But I was a child of incredible braveness and bravado because I was singled out, and I thought I was special. <laughs> um, my mother had to buy two pairs of shoes, small pair on my left foot, the larger pair on my right foot. I would fall a lot. Uh, I had raises on my left foot built into the shoes. You know, I just had a disability. It really wasn't until I reached the age of 11 when the corrective surgery started that I started to be really pissed off with my body because the corrective surgery didn't work. And up until that point, I was training to be uh, a junior ice skating champion. I trained alongside John Curry, you know, and then suddenly everything kind of went a bit kaput. And um, I, I just started to fight against it because I was being labelled and I didn't like it. Well, that's what I want to come to, because children can be very unempathic. Yes. And any difference is highlighted. And at school, if you were any different in any way to mm. other people, then you would be a sort of target and there would be names. And I would think that in to a certain extent, um, that difference would also change you. So oh how did that being um, seen as different change you then? Well, I think I was very liked at school, but also people picked on the speech impediments. <laughs> and I'm only laughing now because it's only in recent years I've seen with clarity how others saw me. I had no idea, no idea. So I was dyslexic and, and had a, a very unique use of language uh, and it made people laugh. And I would get bullied. I get bullied because I was sensitive. I was easy to make cry. But the most extraordinary abuse I ever had was I was about four and a half. And I in our um, class, there was a Wendy house. And two girls would take me into that Wendy house. They would remove their shoelaces and strangle me till I lost consciousness. Now, I didn't know this was abuse. I didn't tell my parents I didn't tell the teachers and then I started to get abused because of the way I sounded rather than the way I moved and again I didn't see it as abuse but one day after a night of no sleep and anxiety at home I walked into the class and I picked a chair up and I smashed it over the bully's head and that changed my life 
And after that point, I became a bit of a leader in my school. I mean, there's there's different forms of abuse, but that sort of abuse, I mean, you, you've also got a list, which I have. Yeah. Um, and some of these things that, that we have and we possess and that people see as difference provide our drive in yeah. life. And yeah. so in a sense, the negativity can become later on, you've got to go through the shit, but later on, it can be a positivity. Now, abuse wasn't only from other school children. Your mother um, was quite abusive, wasn't she? My mother was severely mentally damaged by a childhood experience, which we only learned about in um, three years ago. And uh, after her death, when Ancestry.com showed us press cuttings from a court case that involved her when she was about 16 and she'd witnessed her father murder her mother. And my mother was illegitimate, which terrified her. And now putting the pieces together, I can see why my mother was the creature she was. My mother um, would have been terrified of people discovering not only was she illegitimate, but a member of her family murdered somebody. Because my mother was the absolute double of hyacinth bouquet from a comedy called Keeping Up Appearances. So as children, we weren't allowed to talk to anyone who had an accent. We weren't allowed to misbehave or even talk in public. She was very strict and my father was very strict and my schooling was very strict. But my mother's greatest fear was her history being found out. Now, when my mother, my father met my mother, she was touring with a comedian called Max Wall. She was 18. She'd already been chaperoned since the age of 16. And my father never understood why the chaperone was with her 24 hours a day, a female chaperone who was even with her right up till the wedding night. And the chaperone would never let my father be alone with my mother. Well, we've now discovered that my mother's father, who murdered her mother in front of her, got out of prison within three months and the chaperone was there to protect her from her father. So my mother was living in constant fear. She didn't once talk about this in our lifetime, not even to my father, who she was married to, or to my brother and sister. She carried this for the whole of her life. So my mother would fly off the handle with the greatest of ease. Um, she had real emotional difficulty that as a very beautiful dancer and a woman who was a beauty queen in her teens had given birth to a daughter with a physical defect. She had a real problem with it. Um, but also she was abusive in that she couldn't control her emotions. With my sister, who is eight years older than me, me my, my sister has no memory of her childhood. My brother and I do, because we remember my mother chasing around the house with a carving knife, shouting, I'm gonna kill you. Um, with me, the abuse was, she felt I had no future. So every time I achieved something, the abuse started. And the abuse started in the way, oh, oh, don't believe in it. It's not going to happen. I, When I won in 1982 Best Female Singer in the equivalent of what is the Brits, 
I phoned her and I said, I won. And she said, well, don't brag about it. It's not going to continue. And I said, but I've got this beautiful trophy. Oh, you will fall on it and it will kill you. Oh, wow. So everything to do with happiness, everything to do with joy, everything to do with eating was going to kill us. So as soon as we put food in our mouth, she'd say, you will choke on it. Every time I said, I'm going for a walk, you will be murdered, was the reply. And we ended up, because we're tough children. My parents never knew how they had the children they had. My brother was a Harrier fighter pilot, um, one of only three to actually fly that plane at that time because it was so complex to fly. Um, my sister, right at the top of the NHS, um, uh, uh, one of the kind of runners of the accounting in the NHS. And in the July the 7th bombings, my sister is the one that emptied all the double-decker buses, filled them with oxygen, got them into the underground and saved all those people. Um, she made that decision above everyone else. We are tough children. And my parents were the complete opposite. Oh, that's that's amazing. Um, my my father never loved me. I found this out from my mother um, uh, after he died. Yeah. And um, she told me that she had a third child to keep him. And, of course, he never, of course, I say, because of that, he never had anything to do with me in my early years. And I ended up being a presenter on MTV to get... I presume what I felt would be love from the yeah. whole world, which will compensate not having love from my father. When you hear me say that, and um, this word compensation, do you you instantly know that this is what your fight for a career was as well? Yeah, is... yeah I, I was loved. I do believe I was loved in their way. Um, my father, had, I don't know about your dad, but my father had spent six years away at war, World War II. And my mother is obviously going through a complete lack of education and a complete lack of support. Um, they love me in their way, but their negativity always baffled me. It broke me. It, it meant that I could never experience joy because they had programmed me to suffer when I experienced joy. I think my fight for survival is the industry never accepted me on, on a particularly large level, uh, mostly because I'm minute. I'm barely five foot tall, but I'm not proportioned like a model or like Kim Kardashian. So I was always fighting for my presence as a viable woman. Uh, and every barrier I come up against, I will push back. I will push that barrier down. And I, I do think, yes, you're right, that um, the contribution to that is my upbringing. But also my upbringing taught me to see injustice towards women. And it taught me on a level that is deeply subconscious because my mother didn't use that language. My mother was breathtakingly beautiful. When I she delivered me to my first party with boys when I was 13, the whole room went quiet and a boy said, I want to snog her and pointed to my mother. So my mother, her breathtaking beauty got her through her life. But 
psychologically, she was deeply broken. I mean, one thing, you know, you, you mentioned that when you got the equivalent of a Brit Award back in 1982, that you called your mother. Um, well, I was really calling my dad, but my mother answered the phone. But, but it's also looking for confirmation, isn't it? Oh, God, yeah. You know, and that's what another thing that that we look for in our lives is the wounds that we have in our childhood. We look for the confirmation, but we never get it. You don't get it. Um, and I got it in a very strange way that um, in the five days before my mother left this world, she was screaming for me. She only wanted me with her. And my mother had no faith, but my mother could see that I saw something different. And I sat with her for the five days, as long as well as the other family members. But she knew that if I was there, I could help her get through those five days and release. Because it's just so bloody obvious, we never stop. Our consciousness is a continual thing. And she only saw that in me or acknowledged it in the end. And with my father, it was the same. My, my father wanted me by his bedside, um, but they, they acknowledged it in the end. How difficult has it been for you to touch in your life on this trauma over your life? Because for me, I mean, I'm in trauma therapy now. I've been in therapy, I don't know, I've had a six or eight years of therapy previously. And mm. I've now back in therapy for the last one and a half years. And it's a trauma therapy where it's about how you hold things in your body yeah. and it uh, affects, it's affected your health because of what happens in, in your past. And then it's really trying to go deep inside. And it's, and it's a, a, a very painful process, but it's an important process. But I just wondered how you have dealt with that throughout your life, just with other people on your own within therapy? Uh, the one person who saved my life is my husband, Robert Fripp. He, he just saw it immediately. As soon as he met my mother, he saw the problem. And m m Robert's had trauma in his life and I've had trauma. And we sit down and we talk through everything. And we sit down at least for an hour to two hours a day and just talk. And he helped unravel how I was physically responding to the experiences of negativity. He pointed it out. He said, what your mother has just said is just not logical. It's not logical. Because I was suicidal after every time I met her, right up, we were fighting until two weeks before she died. And my, my husband would sit me down and say, you know what she's just said is illogical. Because even he, after knowing her for 30 odd years, he, she would make him a cup of tea and he'd say no milk, no sugar. And she would deliver a cup of tea with milk and sugar. She would do completely the opposite. So I'd say, oh, I'm so excited. I'm going to be playing Calamity Jane in a national tour. And she'd say, well, it will close in the first week. And if it doesn't, you'll break a bone. And it's illogical. It's absolutely illogical. And I'd hit, well, I would hit the fucking roof. Um, I Because I started fighting back with her when I was 12. And um, eventually I was sent to live with a gorgeous, gorgeous Hindu family in Edgbaston in Birmingham, who, who just saw that we were going to kill each other. Um, so we've had a long, long relationship 
of traumaing each other. Um, but Robert is the one that helped me deal with what I call career abuse, which is ironically the way my family treated me, calling me Hopalong, reflected also in my career with critics and reviews and general comments in showbiz press. It reflected, it was there. It was as if I was showing it on my shoulders. And Robert and I will often sit down and talk about why would a reviewer lie? Um, we had a review once from playing the Roundhouse with our band called The Humans, which we volunteered to open a festival at 6 p.m., knowing that the ticket said it started at 7 p.m. And a reviewer said that no one was there to see us. They decided not to come till 7 p.m. The music was awful and the reviewer wasn't even in the fucking room. So we've always had to deal with dishonesty in the press and we talk about it a lot. And I would say more so as a creative human being, my relationship with dishonesty in the in the performance field, I've had to deal with more than my parents. Um, and it's only since my parents have passed and that I learned my mother's history that I've been putting two and two together as to why I was treated the way I was treated. And actually it's given me a feeling of being very well grounded that my survival instincts kicked in and I, I just see that the problem was theirs. It wasn't mine. It was nothing to do with my disability. It was nothing to do with the fact that I'm small. Small people do get kicked. It, it was, I am a survivor anyway. You know, I'm a strong person. I mean, you just said that you moved in with a Hindu family. I remember because my father, he left when I was about 13. But before that, there were enormous rows. Uh, he was a market trader. He would throw money. And the to be honest, the uh, the we had these wooden panels that looked a bit like East Germany after the war, <laughs> eventually, because they would be pockmarked because of all the money flying around. And mm -hmm. I remember going around a friend's house and his mum and dad sat on the sofa holding hands. And I said to him, what are they doing? Yeah. <laughs> And because my only vision of a relationship was this dysfunctional, horrendous. I mean, I didn't see them in the early days when I presumed they were in love. I only saw them in the period, um, you know, when I was there. And, mm. I, I, and it's very hard not seeing um, and not having that feeling of love that you yeah. obviously didn't have from, from your mother when she was I, alive. I did. I did have love. Uh, but there was part of her that was so broken, it was like a split personality. So she she did give love and she did protect, but it came with extreme outbursts of very confusing anger and despair. Now, I said that my parents were very, very wealthy till I was 12. And my when I was 12, my father lost the entire family business in a stock market slump. And we went from having Rolls Royces to having no food by Friday. And I think one of the reasons I am such 
a survivor and I'm so educated and I self-educate about everything from money to investing to stocks and shares is I saw my parents lose everything. So by the time I was 14, I was lying to get work um, so I could bring money into the house. But what really destroyed my parents, and you've got to keep in mind that my mother was living a lie anyway about social status. For them to lose their money, they lost their social status. And very wonderful people stepped in and gave them money. Um, one is still alive. He, he's my uncle, not a blood uncle, but we call him uncle. And he's 100 this year. And he stepped in, very wealthy man, and gave them a fund to live off. Then I started working and I started to be able to fund them. Eventually, I bought the family home off them and then I bought them a new home. I was giving them more money a week than I was earning um, when I was at the height of my fame. They were in that much shit financially. To watch two people be destroyed who were so hooked on social status taught me a lot. And it, it meant that when I was being knocked and being criticized and being treated like the, the cheap version of Kate Bush in the press. I had to survive. I had to keep my parents alive. I, I had to keep them in a home. And it did nothing but make me tougher and more determined and more self-aware of how utterly fucking brilliant and unique I am. I'm the toughest you can ever meet. And that's what my upbringing did to me. That's wonderful. I think that that power that you have because of that is incredible. The 70s were an era of, un well, not that everything has changed, but they were an era of unbelievable sexism, misogyny, racism, <laughs> yes. and homophobia. I mean, they, oh. were, they were everything. And... Um, I was 13 in 1972, so we were sort of the same age, yeah. I think. Um, and as a gay teenager, along came David Bowie. Oh. And suddenly there was this world where I felt I could belong. Yeah. And David Bowie played a sort of similar role in your life. David Bowie, his career trajectory was a gift to every artist because, boy, he struggled. He really struggled from up to Space Oddity. He, he was just struggling to find his place. He was obviously a phenomenal creative. Then after Space Oddity, he had to deal with prog rock coming in, heavy rock coming in. It confused his writing. But I think The Man Who Sold the World is one of his best albums. Um, and then he found his place within Ziggy Stardust, working with, uh, well, finding Mick Ronson, working with Tony Visconti. Uh, there's a, a producer called Scott, well, I can't remember his full name, who really brought Bowie out. That career tra trajectory that then brought him into the most remarkable 10 years of any artist's life is utterly inspiring to someone who wants to create something new every time they write, but would really like um, commercial success with it. Bowie never let go of what he believed in, and that was himself. I mean, one thing that was really very particular about Bowie was the fact that everything he did was imbued 
with different cultural aspects from books to art to dance to mime you name it it's it's all in there yeah. when i mean i wasn't when i first you know encountered bowie on the television as it were as a teenager um i wasn't aware of all those factors it was only later as i got to know his music and then realized there were other you know including like william burroughs cut up technique or whatever there was other things within it when did you become aware that there were so many cultural things within his music? Well, I think the enemy and the rock record mirror, um, they made it all very clear with excellent interviews with Bowie around 1972, possibly 71. And those magazines circulated in my girls' school. But there was a brilliant Alan Yentob BBC documentary on Bowie, which explored his writing process. And by this time, he was already the man who fell to earth. That was Cracked Actor, wasn't it, I think? Cracked Actor, absolutely yep. brilliant. And at that point, he really ignited the potential in me because I never fitted in. I didn't fit in with the education system because of my dyslexia and dyspraxia, but I saw a way I could fit in. And he introduced me to more literature than my school did. The literature he read was high class, but only recently I got into um, a surrealist artist called Leah Nora Harrington. And she put a play on called Penelope about 1934 and the male lead has Ziggy Stardust makeup on. And I, I only discovered this two months ago, and I, I ran to my husband with a picture and I said, it's either 1934 or 1954, Ziggy Stardust. This is how he got his makeup. He got it from a surrealist artist called Leonora Carrington. And I just thought that is just so brilliant. He was a fisher of culture. He threw the fishing rod out with the hook, pulled it back, and he made it work for him. What culture were you into? What books were you into as a teenager? All the typical ones. Um, Lord of the Rings, which took me about three years to read. That <laughs> led me on to The Hobbit. That led me on to all of um, J.R.R. Tolkien's writings. A girl I went to school with called Angela Power, her father was Canon Power. And he wrote similar literature to J.R.R. Tolkien. And his books didn't break, but these books were wonderful. And he used to give me his books and I love them. Um, I was also reading uh, Mary Stewart, which is kind of romantic, um, legendary mythology. But I really loved the darker stuff. And if I could pick up a, a Dennis Wheatley book from the library, then I would. So I loved things that led on to the culture of um, dragons and dun dungeons and dragons and all of that culture. I really loved it. But I also loved Black Sabbath. I loved Hawkwind. Um, I went to Uriah Heep, didn't quite get the music, but I loved being in that audience. And I was only 11. I used to break into these venues. Uh, I, I love Moody Blues. And I probably would have loved King Crimson if I knew they were playing. And there were probably many times I'd broken into venues when my husband was in that venue. And how, that did you, how did you break in? 
I would get someone going in through the front and I'd say, please go around the back. There's a fire escape. Just open it. I'll get in quickly and close the door. Well, there'd always be about 20 of us there. Um, and it's a habit we kept going when we were touring as punk rockers, we would let people in at the fire exit once we'd sold enough tickets to pay our expenses. Um, it was a culture back then, the fire escape entrance. It, people were very generous and they'd let us in. One thing that um, I read about is that you um, experienced a ghost. I don't I think this is the way to call it sort of a another being, whatever, something from the other side in your when in your bedroom. Yeah. When you used to communicate. Um, yeah. Very special. Yeah. Can you tell me about that? Because when I had an experience when I was 45. Oh, You know, good. later. And I um, was in this hotel in Luxembourg, actually. Yeah. And this family used to visit me every night. And eventually I had to move out because it so freaked me out. And I couldn't okay, communicate what, what, Tell me what they looked like. How many of them were there? There were, it was a nuclear family. It was two parents and two kids, and they would hold on to them a bit like sort of the American picture. What what you know, year was what year was it? This would have been two thousand and one. Two thousand one. And I just wondered that if that hotel was on something or whatever. But no one, you know, everyone thought I was a nutter by saying it the next day. No one wanted to believe me, and so I really found it fascinating that you'd also had some that sort of similar experience. Geographically, where were you? I was in Luxembourg. Oh, that's very interesting. Okay. If you told me you were in Seattle or you're in Minnesota, um, I, I would have said it was a shaman coming to teach you a lesson. Um, the most extraordinary one, and I will get back to your question. Um, I, I We used to live and write with a musician called Bill Rieflin, who was the drummer in REM, and I had a band called The Humans with. Um, the month he was diagnosed with his terminal cancer, I was at his house in the spare bedroom and I was woken up by a, a Caucasian man. Am I allowed to say that word? A white I think man. so, yeah, okay. Okay, um, a, a white man, I was woken up, came through the window, he was in a loincloth, woke me up and he said, I come to teach you how to die. And I said, okay, and he said, it's like peeling off the layers of an onion. When you die, you will go through a process where each layer of your life comes off and the purity of your soul is all that's left. And I woke up and I thought, what the fuck was that about? And I told Bill, and Bill was then diagnosed with terminal bowel cancer. And it freaked Bill out. It really freaked Bill out because I don't think he believed in the afterlife. But I realised now that the shaman, the energy of the shaman, I could pick up, but Bill couldn't. And the lesson was for Bill. So sometimes you meet these experiences because they're lessons, which is why I've just told you that story. Okay, with me, um, I was 14 and my sister, my father and I um, always had very bad poltergeist experiences which freaked my mother out. My mother used to lock herself in a room at night because she didn't want to hear what was going on. My sister, um, who was eight years older than me, was training at Dudley Road Hospital in Birmingham and they trained the nurses then by putting them in the terminal cancer wards. And um, my sister was emotionally destroyed by this, but it made her very strong. And she would come home in tears because her favorite patient would have passed away. Well, one night, all chaos broke out in the house. 
when my sister was woken up because the duvet was flying around the room. Then my father was woken up because his duvet was flying around the room. And with me, my bedroom door was slamming. Now, we went through a period of about four years where the house was like this. We experienced things like the wallpaper just flying off the walls, soaking wet. Um, my mother felt that it was I was the nucleus. I actually think my sister was. Um, she felt that I was the nucleus because I'd never been christened. So I then went into religious education and I was then confirmed by the Archbishop of Canterbury. I was locked away for three weeks until I was christened and confirmed. Um, and then slowly it started, I wouldn't say stop, it became under control. And when I was about 14, I had something that would be explained as a dream, but it's the most tangible thing I've ever experienced in my life. And I've had this experience four times and I yearn for this experience because it's as if the layers were taken off me and the true part of me was taken out to be taught something. And you read about this a lot. A lot of people have had this experience. It, it is, I think, part of, um, the word will come to me, but, but it's part of a culture. It's a cultural, mythological, repeating experience throughout time. Um, I woke up and at the end of the bed was about a nine foot tall silver man. And he was standing in a breeze. Everything was moving. His hair was moving. His clothes were moving. And he was he was incredibly thin. And he was dressed in long gowns. And he put his hands out and he said, come with me. And I lifted out of my body and he took my hand. We, we traveled right through the window and we kept traveling. And the stars were zipping by, zip, 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 zip. And we suddenly stopped at a gas nebulae. And we went into the gas nebulae and there were these huge colorful spheres the most beautiful colors I've ever seen. And they passed through, through each other. And as they did, they made different notes. A, within this space was a monolithic building, absolutely monolithic, three towers. I don't know why that was there, but I do know that the spheres were souls. And he said, this is your true self. This is your soul. And then he brought me back put me back into my body. The next time he came, I was about 15. And this is where it's really strange because I'm dyslexic. He took me out of my body exactly the same way. He took me up into the stars, but this time into the blackness amongst the stars. And he gave me a, an equation lesson. He says, I want you to learn this equation. And he wrote it out. There was algebra, that there was um, pie, there was everything. And I, I remember thinking, why the hell are you teaching me this? I, I don't, I can't do maths or algebra. And then he brought me back. So skip right forward to the age of 45. He came back here to this house and he just stood at the edge of the bed and he said, are you okay? When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. 
At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It was astonishing. And every time this happened, I felt more real and more in place than I do in this body. Trying to grab all the groceries in one trip? Oof, not how you would have done that. You know sometimes less is more. Like when you drive less and save with the USAA annual mileage discount. USAA. Get a quote today. You're listening to Pop, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Have you been around someone at the moment of death? Yes. My mother. Yes. It's yeah, a very, I... it's a, it can be a very beautiful experience. Um, if the person is willing to let go, it's it's very beautiful. And because I, you know, I've been in hospices with people who've died, um, the nurses have the same experience. You see a transition. And you know that the consciousness is, is there for at least 14 hours. But the nurses say, open the windows, let the soul free itself. Um, it's very important at that point that we accept we need to leave this body. It, it's it's like watching a mirage. Yeah, no, I experienced. I was very close to my mother in the end, and and um, I spent many years as her carer. Mm. And um, and the last two weeks had a hospital bed in the front room, and I slept next to her and did everything that a carer does. And um, it was incredibly tough to yeah. witness the death of someone that you love so much. Um, but at the same time, it had these aspects to it. And one of them really threw me completely because my mother used to sit in a chair and watch the birds in the garden, mm. you know, like a lot of old people do. And um, and that would be her sort of favourite occupation. And all the birds she liked came back on the day she died. And it was really bizarre and it was noticeable. And yeah. And for me, that was just sort of a moment where... Um, the environment in which we live connects to us on the deepest level. It does. It really does. We're just not encouraged to to see what's going on around us. And also, the loss is tougher for you. Uh, I believe once you're in the process of going, you, you understand what the process is. Um, I, and I think, you know, we, we are hardwired for survival in this biological body. And that's our experience. Um, but I mean, personally, I have absolutely no fear of death. I only fear how I die. 
Yeah, no, I'm exactly the same. Um, Dave Simpson wrote a book on the on the Sex Pistols, which, and I interviewed him not long ago. And in that book, there's this wonderful uh, quote from you where you'd gone to see them at Bogarts in Birmingham in yeah. September 1976. And you said, it was fantastic. I'd already dyed my hair bright pink and I was wearing bin liners because I couldn't afford clothes. I'd been ridiculed for the way I looked, but I walked into the club and suddenly I wasn't alone anymore. It was a tribe. I walked in, I thought, where have you all been in my life? Uh, because I, I'd been making my own clothes since I was 12. By this time, I was probably 14, up uh, 15 or 16. And I'd always been ridiculed on the street for looking different. I was a hair model. So I, I used to have different color hair every week. And even though I was still at school, I had I looked outlandish. And I walked into Bogarts and it was like, there's 350 people who all look similar to me, not uniform, but they all had made their own clothes and all had different colored hair. And I thought, my goodness, why have I never met you? That's it was amazing. fabulous. So this was like a this was the community that you were looking for in a sense. Yeah, it it very much was the community, but also it sparked something quite competitive in me in that you know these these people look really good and they look really sophisticated some of them and I was thinking I want to look like that I want to take this further uh, none of us knew how to behave at the gig um, we didn't really understand what pogoing was so we just stood there and were kind of ingesting what we were seeing and Johnny Rotten found us profoundly boring and kept going off stage but we were just learning we were there we were eager we were hungry and we were learning what this new movement was and it was extraordinary i mean so many artists you know and he really notices it in his book so many artists and there's this famous manchester gig and so many artists had seen the sex pistols and it was the moment that they decided they wanted to do that in some form, you know, their exactly. own version of that. And Absolutely. that was it with you. Yeah, exactly. I, I saw what looked like a pretty ramshackle performance, full of energy, full of excitement and incredible attitude. But I saw it and I thought, I can do that. I'm going to do that. This is what I'm going to be. It was very releasing, um, considering I'd come from a background where people were really accentuating that I wasn't pretty, I wasn't tall, I wasn't slim, um, I was never going to fit into show business. I suddenly saw how I could do it. I saw my place. Uh, and that was amazing. Because having seen Bowie and, and Bowie do Ziggy Stardust, you were looking at a bird of paradise. You were looking at the most perfect, most complete human being you've ever seen. But then you looked at the Sex Pistols and they were performing as broken people. And I thought, I can do it. I can do it. It, it was fabulous. I mean, one of the things about that era, which I always... I mean, I remember because I think it affected me such a lot. Not only was I, I was also a hair model, I was also dyeing my hair, you know, getting it dyed <laughs> different colours and stuff. Yeah. But as a gay man, you know, I got uh, beaten up by the police coming out of a gay nightclub what, snogging oh. some guy. <laughs> I got beaten up by football supporters. All these events. Yeah. And for having, being different, having different coloured hair, 
being a different sexuality and you also define yourself as a third third gender, gender. don't you yeah yeah but being different was being a target in yeah. that era yeah how did well, that make you feel well, I'm very sorry you went through that, but one of the most extraordinary experiences of me being saved, I was walking down the King's Road about 1977 and um, some football fans beat up the gay boy I was with. He he was called Howard um, and I'm he's a boy because he was a boy. I'm not using yeah. slang. Very beautiful boy. And they beat him up and then I was protecting him so they started to throw, try and throw both of us through a glass window, a big sheet of glass, and they were flinging us at it. Derek Jarman saw this happen because he had an exhibition <laughs> at World's End. He got a broken chair leg. He ran out of the exhibition across the King's Road and started to hit the shit out of the football fans and save us. It was extraordinary, gentle, beautiful Derek Jarman, who I've never seen be physical with anyone, was beating the fucking shit out of these footballers, dragged us back to um, the exhibition and looked after us. Oh, well, I love him even more. <laughs> yeah, you know, made me love him even more. Um, I used to get laughed at, uh, but buses in Birmingham wouldn't let me on the bus. And a very common thing you'd hear, what are you, a fucking clown? Um, taxi drivers wouldn't give me um, a lift. But extraordinarily, when I moved to London, walking down Oxford Street, I'd get spat at because women from other cultures just could not understand why a woman was dressed this way. They instantly thought I was a sex worker or something. Uh, and they just would spit at us. They'd throw dog shit at us um, if they could. It, it was extraordinary because I would dress, I was dressed like that and I thought I'm really quite a nice person. I want to get to know people, I want friends. I, I don't want to dress like this to make enemies. Uh, and that was quite a dilemma for me, but the aggression was extraordinary, but it also created my career because directors wanted to meet me. Directors knew that I wasn't afraid to be experimental and wasn't afraid to do different things on stage or to look what a, a very beautiful actress would be called looking demeaning or bad. It didn't scare me. So it led to my career. It's the Jean Genet tub of Vaseline, isn't it? That Jean <laughs> Genet had a tub of Vaseline in his prison cell and the prison guards would beat him up. And he realised that this object had power, had power. And this is what pop stars are able to use because they have their objects, which can be their words, their image, their music, and that is their power. And that was your power. And that was probably the, you know, a moment where you realized that power as well. Absolutely. Um, am I a power player? I'm incredibly emphatic, em empath empathetic. How do you say it? Em empathic, I think. Empathic. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, so I don't like to hurt people. I don't like aggression. But because of my past, if people try to do either 
hurt me or be aggressive towards me, they meet a tidal wave of of kind of well-practiced self-survival. Um, but I, I really like to be part of a team and I like to be a good friend and I like to be supportive. But sometimes when I stand on a stage where you're in front of an audience who haven't specifically come to see you like big festivals, then I can turn that power on. Yeah, I mean, I've I've heard you talk about stories where your anger has been oh, incredibly yeah. excessive, if I can use that word. It's been uh, it's been enormous. Have you um, over the years have you sort of understood that and been able to live with it rather than actually try yeah. to deal with it? You see what uh, I mean? Yeah. The difference. I, I haven't done therapy because my husband is really the greatest person I can talk to. And I hope I'm as big a help to him as he is to me. I don't really bottle things up. But what I, I really enjoy doing in a really perverse way, that there are certain types of um, uh, uh, kind of snobby literati types who will always attack me and my passive anger violent response I love I really get off on it gives me the deepest thrill to walk in front of them and be fucking amazing it really does and they don't know that they're feeding my ambition and that probably has come from my childhood you I've had these two distinct passions in your life from uh, acting and performing, singer and so on. How did they work at the start? Because you said you saw the Sex Pistols and that's what you wanted to be. That was it. Mm. But you were at drama school, I presume, at that time. Yeah, I was at drama school studying plays, dancing and stage singing. Uh, my acting career took off way before my music career, but my heart was in music. And that that's a youthful choice. I knew if I was going to be the musician I wanted to be, it had to start as soon as possible. I, I was spotted because to be a punk rocker back then was really rare. And people were talking about this girl on the streets of Birmingham who was dressing in her own clothes and had peacock hair. And two brothers called the BCAC brothers heard about me and they're a playwright and a musical writer and they worked together doing their own stage and tv plays and they ended up tracking me down and casting me in a play about a girl who wanted to be on top of the pops and breaks into the top of pop studios that led to me writing two songs with a band called Bilbo Baggins for the tv filming and that led to me joining the National Theatre which led to me being able to form a band I, had, I mean, that was Glitter, which is actually, glitter. you can see this wonderful excerpt on YouTube, which I managed to hunt out, I'm, which is really I good. Am, and your character lusts after Midjua. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not good in this play. I'm <laughs> a rough diamond. I, I've never been on camera before. But it by coincidence, Kate Nelligan, the actress, watched it when it broadcast three months later and said to the superstar German film star Maximilian Schell, who was directing her at the National Theatre, I want that girl to play Emma in Tales from the Vienna Woods. And uh, four weeks later, I was living in London, um, socialising with Brenda Bletham, Warren Clark, 
um, many, many more, Elizabeth Spriggs. I had, was launched immediately, Stephen Burkhoff, immediately into the glitterate of London theatre. I had, I think, five astonishing years where angels were just throwing stardust in front of my feet. And I managed to form the band and get a recording deal and build a huge audience. I mean, that was it. You were in Jubilee. You were in Quadrophenia. Tempest. Yeah, Tempest. You, I mean, you were in so many um, acting roles that gave you uh, an enormous profile. Yeah. Um, but you were clearly an absolute workaholic, weren't you? I still am. And back then, um, you it was really frowned on to do both acting and singing. Actors, if an actor did a voiceover or a TV advert, they would never work again in theatre. It was, it was that bad. And theatre actors didn't talk to film actors. Film was considered the worst back then. So it was quite renaissance to do both. And I'm a workaholic and you've got to remember I was supporting my parents financially. And, uh, you know, making money and being creative were almost equal because making money represented survival for my family. I, I, I loved every bit of work I ever did. I, I, I really loved it. I love the closed environment of a film set. I, I really did like working at the Royal Court and the ICA and those highly prestigious theatres. Uh, and I loved being on stage with a mad punk audience pogoing away. I felt really lucky. Were you someone that was really concentrated on developing yourself and your knowledge of the things that you were involved in, or were you just living? Oh, no, I, I was in full development and I still am. And part of that is because of my physicality. I always have to work on my physicality. I always have to keep my legs working. That That's just something to do with the journey from my brain to my legs. So I'm always working on my physicality. I will never, ever get to a stage where I'm as physically controlled as someone like, uh, let, let's say, um, Madonna or, or Lizzo or, or anyone that uses dance in their, their musical interpretation, because I do have disability. Um, and also with my memory, I have a very strange memory. I can tell you, you, you could stand outside a door in London and I'll tell you the address. I have visual memory. Oh, it's bizarre. It's absolutely bizarre. I can tell you exactly what I was wearing 12 months ago to the day. Um, and I can tell you that right up until I was about 15. But tell me your name or tell me a fact in literature. I have to keep relearning, relearning, relearning. For me, when I'm writing songs, I have to keep relearning the eight notes, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. There's something not in that neural journey going on. So I have a phenomenal experience of uh, knowledge of some things. And on basics, I am permanently frustrated that I cannot remember faces and names. So I know this so I can work with it and I can do the exercises I need to do to keep the neural connections. But I will always be learning. And that's because of how my body is. 
so you're in London. You're you've done these uh, 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 been involved in these amazing stage plays and in in these films, and uh, in your heart is still music. How did you then move? Well, you didn't move because you're still doing those other things. How how did the music part then come about? Well, it was tough. And I, I put the toughness down to my physicality. Um, where, you know, when record companies came to see a female singer, they wanted to lust after her. Um, when I made um, Quadrophenia, I made a conscious effort to lose about three stone in weight and change my appearance. And that was because up until that point, I'd had two years of us not being signed uh, to a record label. And we we built up, we had enough for a set, we were doing regular touring, we were drawing 2,000 kids into pubs, they couldn't fit in, they, they were surrounding pubs, yet we were still not being signed. And I made a very phys, you know, physical decision that I was going to have to change my appearance so people saw me differently. And during um, Quadrophenia, the filming, I was also making Quatermass with Sir John Mills. So I was working day and night and I, I just took a lot of speed and I lost three stone. And that helped me readdress how the industry saw me because by the time I started gigging again after making Quadrophenia, um, I was a completely physically different person. That also made you ill, didn't it? I mean, oh God, I was so ill, so <laughs> ill. I mean, I, I think the longest I've ever been without sleep was 10 days and the longest I've ever been without food and water was three days. And I was on a two week shoot of Quadrophenia while working at Wembley Stadium on Quatermass. And no, I, my agent didn't put two and two together that I was actually working 24 hours. So I wasn't eating and I wasn't sleeping. and the makeup lady was watching me get smaller and smaller and my clothes hanging off me and I coughed I had a very bad cough and she saw blood in what was coming up and she literally slammed down her brushes grabbed my wrist and said I'm taking you to hospital now and she walked me around the corner to where is the the Langham Hotel on Hyde Park Corner that was a hospital she walked me straight in and she said, test this girl now. And I had pneumonia. So I was put on um, uh, antibiotics and lots of things to support my lungs. And I carried on working for 24 hours. I mean, pneumonia takes a long time to get over. It's oh, well, yeah. Like... yeah, and it scars your lungs. Um, but I just carried on. I carried on with it. <laughs> with taking speed and just working 24 hours. See, I love that. I absolutely love it. I love that, you know, athletes run 24 miles. I can't do that, but I can push my body to work hard. You were really in the epicentre of, of uh, music at that point because you were, you were in a warehouse, weren't you? It was this mayhem yeah. warehouse and lots of musicians were hanging around. Tell me about that and tell me how it felt, because in a sense, they were already successful or making oh, yeah. it. Yeah. You hadn't been at that point. Uh, well, I was cult. I, I was definitely ascending. Um, but 
you know, the the people that gave great reviews to most of the bands didn't re review me kindly. Um, but I definitely, I had an audience. What made me impossible to ignore was my audience was enormous. And also my output was enormous. Um, so Mayhem was uh, a British rail, rail warehouse, which we converted into a venue. We weren't supposed to, it's completely illegal. Um, a, a man called Keith was the main developer and keeper of it. And I kind of came in as a rent payer investor. Adamant's wife, um, Eve, was there. And uh, a music journalist from the NME, um, John Hurley, was there and his brother, Kevin. And we ran this place and it became incredibly popular. Steve Strange would take it over from Fridays to Mondays for four day parties. Spando Ballet did their first gig there. Um, Iggy Pop um, rehearsed The Idiot there. John Cale was there. Bowie came to visit. It, it was very, very successful. It was grotty. It was dirty. It was cold. It was dark. It had one toilet. It was totally underground. Um, and it ran and ran and ran. It's now been knocked down. And when it was about to be knocked down, there was protests that it should be preserved because of the history of it. I mean, earlier when we talked about the Sex Pistols, you said this was your community. When people came to see you in 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 pubs and, you know, in the early days, it's two, two to three thousand people would come. Yeah. What do you think they saw you as? Was it also their community? Yeah. I think what they saw in me, I mean, I was definitely fancied by the boys and girls that, that all that was going on. But I think they saw the underdog that made good. Uh, I was brought up within my family as an underdog. And I think to a certain extent in the industry, you know, that still goes on a little bit. But I think the fans that I talked to had similar childhood experiences to you and me. And, you know, people that were too scared to come out as gay, people who totally identified with my not wanting to be identified at all as a gender, because it led to me being belittled because I wasn't supermodel, but you know, I wasn't pretty and slim, you know, it meant my gender meant I was being undermined and, and criticized for the way God made me. Um, so when they came to my shows, I think it gave them strength to answer back. It gave them strength to believe in themselves, believe in their instinctive internal voice, which is our true voice, and follow who and what they are meant to be and not be told to be something else by others. And that's always been my message. And I believe that's how I built my audience. What were you learning on the way to have sort of the success that you had by playing these gigs? What were you actually learning and what was lacking in terms of your thinking, OK, in order to get to the next stage, I need this and this? I've always been my worst enemy, always, because I would never do the obvious. And there were times if I did the obvious, I could have prolonged experiences. When Anthem came out, which huge album, gold, multi-seller, multi-seller, uh, there's obviously 
six singles on that album, but we decided it would exploit fans if we released more than two off the album. If we went with four singles, we could have prolonged that success into putting me into arenas. Uh, and I've never, ever really gone that way. I've always gone against formulaic ways of moving, formulaic ways of writing. So every album, I'd have a different style. Now, I realise I was my own worst enemy by doing that. Um, and I can see that now when I create, that what people want and need from me and my natural way of creating music and writing is to do it with energy. I am not a balladeer. I'm not a love song person. I'm a person that you come into the room to see to have your energy lifted. So it's taken me a long time to see, respect, trust and honour that. When I, I was a lot younger, I would just go off on tangents that confuse the industry. So I'd make an album, then I'd go and do a stage play. I'd do a stage play, I'd then go and do a film. You know, I was always moving because I felt each of those communities were making me more creative. I think it did work with me. I think it's made me a more interesting artist, but I needed to learn what the industry needed at a certain level. What, so, was it, what was it about Joe Borgen that um, you connected with and him with you? What was this sort of symbiotic relationship in terms well, of writing? The word symbiotic is exactly what worked between us. We had a, a great understanding, like brother and sister. Joel and I, I mean, I've never laughed as much as when I was with Joel. Um, and perhaps there's similarities with Joel to his upbringing and to my upbringing, but also to how people physically responded to us. I think there were similarities. I, I have no idea why Joel trusted me or even liked me, no idea, because we never had those kind of in-depth conversations, uh, but we were very, very creative together. And we were creative in a way neither of us expected to go. Joel loved jazz. I loved energy and expression and performance. And I think it made us create something very unique. I think Sheep Farming in Barnet is one of the best albums on the planet. Blue Meaning is stunning. It's stunning. Um, anthem, recognised, stunning. And um, one album that did well, but not as well as Anthem, um, Love is the Law and also Changing. But Love is the Law, it's a breathtaking album. And we can hear that influence in the rest of the 80s. We definitely were influential. And I think with Joel and I, part of it came from the fact that we laughed so much. And I have I have a similar relationship with my current co-writer, Simon Darlow, that we go into a room and things happen. And it's a deeper experience. It's not a formulaic experience. It's to do with whatever that base chakra is. It connects. We have a kind of bond that connects and things happen. I've been in writing situations with many great writers and just think, what am I going to do? There's, there's no chemistry. There's no chemistry. And then you find someone and the chemistry is irresistible. And I think it's, you know, a deeper psychic animal instinct level.
you said at the beginning of this interview that Robert, Robert Fripp, saved you. Yeah. Where were you mentally in your life then when you met him? Okay. Um, when Before I met Robert, there was no one in my life that could explain the psychology of my relationship with my mother. So I was in a really bad place. Um, my, my mother would call me a slag because I'd have three boyfriends. Um, you know, you're a slag. When are you going to get married? You're a slag. And so I had no, nothing and no one protecting my self-identity. Joel tried. There were situations where Joel had to protect me. Nigel Glocker, the drummer on Anthem, definitely protected me. But when he left, I felt that my my world had gone because I, I was totally alone. Um, I was living in a situation where I was in permanent fear. And um, Joel did what he could to protect me. Uh, and Robert came along. Robert had heard from the management my living conditions. And Robert bought me a ticket to America. He said, pack a bag, a car will be waiting around the corner and you're not going back. And he just, he really helped me from day one. He helped me. Um, it, it was a, a violent and very unsettling time. Um, it, he it put my parents' lives in danger. It put everyone's lives in danger who knew me. And uh, I stayed in America till it was safe to come back. He instantly knew that you were the one, didn't he? He, he instantly he knew. knew he immediately. Said, yeah, yeah he, he knew before the three weeks when he met me. He said, because he's living in New York, he said, I'm going, I'm, my diary's empty. I'm going back to the UK. I'm going to meet my wife. He knew. So, so Robert, you know, you, you may think I'm wacky in the experiences I've had. Robert is exactly the same. He's exactly the same. He's had the same psychic and spiritual experiences. And so if he saved you, did you save him? That's only a question he can ask. I think I'm a handful for him. I, I think the way Robert looks on it is I'm his spiritual work because Robert comes from a background where you work on things that make you uncomfortable. You work on things that you disagree with. Um, I, I think I'm his spiritual work. But you'd have to ask him that question. Because this year you're also going to be playing at the Isle of Wight, aren't you? We're doing everything. This Which is year. amazing. No, but the Isle of Wight is a big one, isn't it? It's There's an one. even. You can't broadcast oh. this. Do you edit any of this? Um, no. So tell me afterwards when I turned it off. We're, do we're doing the biggest. Where... We're oh, doing right. the biggest. Oh, oh, well, I've got it. I've got it already. <laughs> <laughs> Not been announced yet. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but believe me, to be invited back to the Isle of Wight, because I played it last year and it changed my career. It We, we were broadcast on Sky Arts. It changed everything. It, it was a magical performance. The camera work was fantastic. The audience were rammed. You could see them. We were in the big top, which takes a, a good 8,000. You could see them rammed all the way outside. It was a magical day and we've been invited back. You said also during this interview that the, the critics would be very mean to you. 
you know, the I think well, they know, tried. Yeah. OK. Yeah, over the years. There's, but... there's certain types that are just mean and victimize anyway. But I won a lot of critics over. But anyway, sorry, I interrupted. Well, you. no, it's just that today, you know, you mentioned the Isle of Wight gig last year and and that today, do you feel that all that past has been overcome and you're now seen in the way that you should be seen as someone who was really uh, responsible for the wave of the 80s uh, in in so many ways, musically, visually, your attitude, the female power, mm. sorry, the third gender power. That's fine, that's fine. <laughs> no, even, I'm getting, even I'm getting confused now. <laughs> and so on. Do, do you feel that, you know, this, that you are now at the point where that respect and that love has finally really showed itself in in a in a grown up way let's say well that it's lovely to be acknowledged and it's lovely there's definitely a sense of relief in certain areas a lot of very powerful female writers have picked up on my career journey and have made good um, the guardian has been remarkable to me in the last 3 years remarkable um, Robert and I now have another hurdle that both of us have to face, and that is we're being seen working together. Our social media, Sunday Lunch and Upbeat Moments, is phenomenally popular and it is really well loved. But we now want to bring to the stage uh, a really perfect rock show. And it's I think that this year is going to be a year of re having to reprove ourselves in many ways, even though both of us are, are, the, are at the height of our artistry. Uh, I never feel settled. I never feel I've arrived and I never feel I've been accepted, but that doesn't matter because as an actress, those are wonderful, wonderful things to have in the back of your head while you're creating a character. Um, it, it would be lovely to just feel, oh, I've made it, but I don't feel that and I'm not sure I ever will. But when people acknowledge us as creative artists and in America for the first time in, during lockdown and now, we're viewed as performance artists in a really respectful way, that it, it's very satisfying. It is satisfying. Well, I, I find it wonderful. I mean, and I wish you really continued success. And I love your story because it's, it's, it's tough. And it's hard and it's and it's got these really sort of oh deep moments in it that that are tough to to hear actually um but it has created you and and in the last few years and i think because the world has changed thank god and it's opened up and people more much more aware i think this is the era in a sense where you are now allowed yeah <laughs> finally to be Toya and uh, Toya has been as I said you've been a big part of my life and at the end I just want to thank you for your creative contribution to our culture because it's been massive and um, you're also a lovely person. <laughs> <laughs> well I mean thank you Steve thank you so much uh, what I will say is love was always there but love and hate are two very close partners and I think some, sometimes people just 
love you in the wrong way. And when I experience violence in my life, it's because of jealousy from someone else or when with my parents is they just didn't know how to love, but they believed they were loving me. Uh, and that's where forgiveness comes from. Trying to grab all the groceries in one trip? Oof, not how you would have done that. You know sometimes less is more. Like when you drive less and save with the USAA annual mileage discount. USAA, get a quote today. Right now at Safeway, earn four times rewards points when you shop for participating items with Safeway for you. Shop for items like Ready Whip Whipped Cream, Deer Park Natural Spring Water, Dan and Danimals Drinks, Philadelphia Cream Cheese, and 7-Up to earn four times rewards points with Safeway for you. Offer expires January 4th. Plus, get select holiday essentials like gift wraps, bags, holiday decor, lights, and more. Buy one, get one 50% off. Restrictions apply. Promotions may vary. Visit Safeway.com or head in store for full offer details.